Hey everybody, Magnus here. At the time I record this, Brandon Routh di just did an interview with ComicBook.com where he said that nobody ever criticizes Superman Returns in his presence. He said, and I quote, Nobody has the balls to do that. Well, well, don't I feel like an idiot. You see, for those of you who don't know, I went to Wizard World Dallas back in 2013, just a couple of weeks before Man of Steel opened. Blandon was there, and my friend's semi-Superman Returns fan roommate was basically creaming his shorts about the prospect of meeting good old Brandon Ralph. Now, I resolved to be on my best behavior. I mean, the way I looked at it, if I'd somehow been given an opportunity to shoot the bull with, uh, I don't know, George Reeves, or Christopher Reeve, Tom Welling, or Henry Cavill, dude, I'd be pissed if someone came along and rained on my parade. So, I promised myself that I wouldn't ruin this for my friend's roommate. This is a big deal for him. So instead, I just furiously snapped a bunch of pictures of them together, shaking hands, Ralph signing his the, the roommate's Superman Returns poster, as well as a Brandon Ralph headshot, and then chatting with each other for just a few minutes. It was about as boring as you'd expect, too. And no, I didn't meet Brandon Ralph. He and I shook hands because he initiated it. We exchanged good morning, and that was it. That doesn't qualify as meeting someone. If you disagree, fine. But that doesn't count if you ask me. Now anyway, as I say, Man of Steel was just a few weeks away at that point, and honestly, this whole thing really meant a lot to the roommate guy, and so I decided to just drop it, all right? Now, I read this quote, and all of a sudden, I don't have the balls to say anything to Brandon Routh about what a horrifying crock of bullshit Superman Returns was always going to be before he was even cast. I play the nice guy. I take the high road. I don't cause a scene over, let's face it, nothing. I promise not to ruin someone else's good time, because honestly, people, I wouldn't want it uh, ruined for me if it was my turn under different circumstances. And I don't have the balls to say anything to this guy? Hey, fuck you, dude. That misproportioned freak doesn't think I have the balls to say anything to him? Challenge accepted, asshole. Hey, your attention, please! This is a piece of art. His Kryptonian biological makeup is enhanced by Earth's yellow sun. <laughs> Dr. Doom wears body armor to conceal his own mangled form. Worst episode ever. Why? Who shot first? Who gives a shit? It's what's called super nerd nitpicking over something that's not really that important.
Hello, and welcome back to Trennis Magnus Punches Reality, presented by Two True Freaks. I'm your host, Magnus, and on previous occasions, my obsession with comics, movies, and TV shows has cost me jobs, friends, engagements, and even family members. But I keep on keeping on. Anyway, I mostly suspended all of that just a while ago to talk about Superman. As a matter of fact, this episode marks the end of my mega-series celebrating Superman. You see, I've spent the last 11 weeks talking all about Superman, and I'll give you a little bit more elaboration on that in just a second, but for right now, I should point out that I've done a lot of six-episode miniseries dedicated to a particular topic or theme or idea in the past, so by itself, that's nothing new. But this Superman mega-series that I've been going through recently is probably the most ambitious thing I've ever attempted, considering how long it's lasted. And I gotta tell you, it's been pretty exhausting, too. Now, don't get me wrong. I know how much you guys have all loved this mega-series and how you all need a new pair of shorts after each show and everything, but at the same time, it's been a real ass-kicking to go through all of this stuff, but... I got to tell you, for, you know, of all characters, Superman's worth it. Now, it'd be totally understandable if you're wondering why I'm going to all this trouble for Superman right now. And in case it wasn't obvious, 2014 is a seriously important milestone in Superman's history because this year marks his 76th anniversary. Because of that... My opinion is there's no better way to spend 2014 than talking about Superman. 76 years. I mean, this is huge. This is important. And no other superhero character has stuck around in comics for 76 years. So it made a lot of sense to me to spend at least a little bit of time during 2014 celebrating Superman's 76th anniversary. You guys understand what I'm saying here? I'm going to go ahead and repeat it, just in case any of you are missing the point. There's no better way to spend the year of 2014. And there's no better character to focus on than Superman. And obsessing over just how freaking awesome Superman is. And how it's worth celebrating the fact that this year is Superman's 76th anniversary. So, anyway... That's enough of that stuff, I think. Now, unless this is your first episode of Trennis Magnus Punches Reality, you probably know what a pre-crisis Superman fan I am. My view is it's hard to get bigger, more epic, or more mythic than Superman during the Silver and Bronze Ages. Everything had this incredible mythical scope to it that Superman had never had before and arguably hasn't had since. And so the subject matter for this episode is a kind of retrospective of sorts for that era of Superman. As a matter of fact, kind of like All-Star Superman, which I talked about with John M. Wilson a, uh, a while back, you could view today's story as a sort of unofficial end to the Silver Age Superman story. If you want to, that is. You don't have to, but 
This story has a lot going for it as far as being the end of this version of Superman, if you want it to be. But before I get too far into that, I'd probably better introduce my co-host. He's a man who really needs no introduction. And partly that's because most of you already know him. But partly it's because he's probably guest starred on your podcast. And if you don't have a podcast, odds are he's been bugging you about starting one so that he can guest appear on it. I mean, seriously, people, Howard Stern and Rush Limbaugh probably don't spend as much time in front of a microphone as this guy does. You see, way out in Georgia, there's this fella, fella I want to tell you about. Fella by the name of Michael Bailey. He's a podcaster, too. I only mention it because there's a man, I won't say hero, because what's a hero? But sometimes there's a man, I'm talking about Bailey here, sometimes there's a man, well, he's the man for his time and place, fits right in there, and that's Bailey in Georgia. And even if he's a lazy man, and Bailey's most certainly that, Quite possibly the laziest in Fayette County, which would place him high in the running for laziest worldwide. Sometimes there's a man. Sometimes there's a man. Oh. Lost my train of thought here. But. Ah, hell, I done introduced him enough. Welcome back, Mr. Michael Bailey. I'm really glad that you are that familiar with Fayette County. Uh, to because uh, uh, because I would agree that some of the laziest human beings on the face of the planet live here. I won't lie; I actually had to Google that part. I had no idea. <laughs> thank you so much for having me on, and thank you once again for uh, the best introductions uh, in, in in podcasting. I have uh, I, I am always in awe of what you're able to come up with. <laughs> Well, uh, thank you very much. Much appreciated. Now, for those of you who don't know, Michael is the host and proprietor of Views from the Long Box and Bailey's Batman podcast, which is currently on hiatus, but nevertheless, I can't not mention that. He's also the co-host of From Crisis to Crisis, a Superman podcast, and the guest on more podcasts than I'm probably ever going to live to listen to. Now, I got to tell you, if podcasting was filmmaking, Michael Bailey would be Kevin Bacon, which... I guess that's better than being Ted McGinley. I don't know, but yeah, I, I, don't, I don't know. He he was on some successful shows. He was in Revenge of the Nerds, so yeah, yeah, he was the main jock guy, wasn't he? Yes, he was. Captain America was one of his uh, his compatriots in that movie. Matt Salinger. Or... Yeah, he was one of the jocks in Revenge of the Nerds. I did not know that. Yeah, I, I realized that watching it a couple years ago, and I'm like, really? Oh, okay then. He did two films. Congratulations. <laughs> <laughs> well, anyway, so now Michael was kind enough uh, to agree to join me uh, for this show. Now, what happened was I realized I needed a second voice for this episode. And, and since he always brings a totally different perspective, and since, let's face it, he's just a really cool guy in the first place, Michael really was my first choice to be uh, the guest this time out. But one nice little benefit of recruiting Michael as my guest is that you can kind of sort of view this episode as a little bit of a follow-up to the 26th episode of this show, wherein Michael and I talked about whatever happened to the man of tomorrow. The numbers of which, by the way, have recently just 
fucking gone into overdrive. They've just blown up. I don't know why everyone is suddenly so interested in that show. I'm happy. I just don't completely understand. But anyway, this show is kind of a sequel to that one in as much as we're going to be talking about a kind of sort of similar concept. Speaking of which, I should ask my guest, which story are we talking about this time, Michael? Well, we are talking about the classic Death of Superman story from Superman number 149, which was the last 10-cent issue of Superman. Wow. Uh, yes, 150 was the first 12-center. I did not know that. Oh. Well, uh, but apart from that, this is, all, this is an imaginary story, isn't it? Yes. This is, uh, this is one of the many imaginary stories from the Silver Age. Oh, I see. Well, I'm going to put you on the spot and say... Just what the hell is an imaginary story? Uh, imaginary stories were these great, this great concept that uh, Weisinger came up with, where basically it may never happen, but then again it may. And I think that was like kind of the the ongoing uh, thesis of these things was that they would basically told what if stories. You know, what if Superman got married? What if Lois Lane and Clark Kent got married? And, but she didn't know he was Superman. What if uh, what if Superman split into two people, Superman Red and Superman Blue? And they were just ways, I think, of uh, on a nuts and bolts level, I think it was, we need a plot for this issue of Superman, so let's do something really crazy, because I, I, to my in my mind, telling Superman stories in this era must have been really complicated because it's not like you were doing a 22 page story every issue, right? Mm -hmm. They were, they were doing three, eight, uh, like three, eight or 10 page stories every issue. And after a while, you know, they would repeat themselves, but to be fair, the audience would probably cycle out by that point anyways, because I think kids, I think the, the going theory was that kids read comics for about three to four years and Wessinger was the editor for well over a decade, so he saw that cycle through every once in a while. But the imaginary stories were just ways of telling a story that you couldn't tell in the normal day-to-day. I mean, the Silver Age gets kind of a rap for not being all that big on continuity, but I think Superman was more the exception to that rule because it's not like he had a strict continuity, but the stories created a mythology, you know, it's it's not that they were worried about what happened in issue 147, but if we've already introduced gold kryptonite, we're going to tell you about gold kryptonite again in the next story and not pretend that it never happened. Right. And I think, it, you know, I, I, I completely agree. There is a especially with Superman, uh, of all things, there is this strange reluctance to acknowledge that that continuity did in fact exist. It maybe wasn't the tightest thing in the entire world, but, you know, uh, Mort, Mort Wessinger did get a... Uh, he, he doesn't get a whole lot of credit. Well, he gets credit for having invented it, but he doesn't really get much credit for abiding by it as tightly as he did. And um, anyhow, well, I always thought of uh, imaginary stories as this kind of cute little gimmick to let someone tell continuity-killing stories without really risking the status quo. And let's face it, I think, whether it's Superman or anybody else, the Silver Age in comics was all about keeping, or actually first developing and then keeping a status quo. And to be honest, 
of the imaginary uh, of the imaginary stories that I've ever read, most of them are really good. Yes. Yeah, I, I've rarely read one that I was just like, yeah, it was okay. Yeah, there was one where, um, and now of course now I'm blanking on the issue number. Maybe this will jog your memory. I don't know, but what happens is uh, Clark ends up getting exposed to gold kryptonite at the same time he suffers amnesia. So he doesn't remember having been Superman, and in fact he is no longer Superman. And I think at one point he, during the story he was married to Lois, and then she, she dies or something like that. And so you're kind of following this clueless doofus throughout the, the entire story. And by the end, you know, dude, you really do feel for him. I mean, what a way for Superman to go. I mean, anybody deserves better than this, but especially Superman, you know? Yeah, there was a really good one right at the tail end of the of the Silver Age, uh, before I think really the Bronze Age hit action comics, mm-hmm. uh, when Leo Dorfman was writing that tiled. And if you want to read some wacky Superman stories, uh, read some Leo Dorfman Superman stories from like 1969, 1970, because that man he he was like the Jack Kirby of Superman stories. He just he would put concepts out there, and you just go along for the ride and enjoy it. You know, even if it didn't make a whole lot of sense. But it was a two-parter that takes place in the future where Superman has lost his powers and he's in a wheelchair. And it's just, it, it, it has this, uh, Charlie Niemeyer covered it on Superman in the Bronze Age in the early days of that show. And when I finally read it, it actually had some of the, like one of the most fist-pumping endings to a story where you heard the John Williams music swelling. Mm-hmm. And, and the way it resolved itself, I don't really want to spoil it too much, but it was, it was just, again, like you said, it was one of those things where you really felt for Superman and the situation he was in. And I don't mean the situation as in, you know, Mike from the Jersey shore, but just, you know, <laughs> the, the, the circumstances within the story taking place. And I think that's, that's the heart of an imaginary story and why they chose to end calling back to our previous uh, my pre- one of my previous times in the show why they chose to end that era of superman with an imaginary story was it was just a good you know quote unquote you know you know aren't they all i've mocked that in the past but to be fair when i would get to imaginary stories uh, like in superman from the 30s to the 70s or in the greatest superman stories ever told they were the ones that at the beginning of i looked forward to reading the most because you knew something big was going to happen. And you could argue that it was cheating because it didn't really happen. But at the same time, if you set that up as your premise, as if you would, as you say, if you put that right on front street, then I think your audience will give you a pass. I think that's why what if was such a popular title at Marvel for such a long time is that you knew going in that this didn't matter but it's okay because you're just telling a you're just telling a, a a story from a different angle. So right, and this is one of the better ones in my opinion. Right, you know, and here's the thing: it's strange to think how long uh, imaginary stories actually ended up sticking around. I mean, there seems to be this perception that they died off sometime around the early to mid '60s, and then that was basically it. But you know, for my money, Superman entered the Bronze Age in um, uh, Superman. That is the monthly title, Superman, number 233, 
which was preceded by an imaginary story where Clark Kent is the villain and Lex is Superman. He's the one that comes from Krypton and everything. And this is, you know, one of this was one of the lead ups to Superman entering the Bronze Age. And on top of that, this storyline was actually written by, wait for it, Carrie Bates. So this concept stuck around for a long time. And, you know, I think there's a lot of revisionism that takes place that says that audiences didn't take this uh, seriously. There was all this Marvel shit that was going on. And that's where, you know, a lot of the popular you know attention seemed to be. I'm sorry. This is one of those things. It just seems like the whole idea of an imaginary story stuck around way too long for me to think that, you know, people were laughing at it even when these things were coming out. I think that there's a, you know, you talk about revisionist history. I think there's a little bit of that going on with, you know, sales of Superman that, you know, I don't have the figures in front of me, but I would, I would assume based on how DC was continuously, uh, you know, promoting this character. And, you know, you, you can argue that Marvel was more popular but at the same time, at the same time that Marvel had animated stuff coming on the TV, Superman had a series that lasted longer than any of the other filmation shows, longer than the Batman show, longer than the Aquaman show. So, you know, to I, I would really put some of the blame on that documentary that came out right before Superman Returns came out, the one that was oh, uh, look up in the sky. Yeah, the one that was narrated by Kevin Spacey. Which I thought was a was a a nice looking documentary, but whenever they would talk about the comics, it would just piss me off because they would get th- they would generalize things so much that but then present that generalization as fact, mm-hmm. and that always bugs me because it's just like you know Superman wasn't socially relevant in the late sixties; he was still selling, you know. They changed editors, yes, but that wasn't due to low sales. That was just a change in regimes. So, you know, I, I, I get aggravated by this kind of stuff. So I apologize. I shouldn't rant as much on somebody else's show. Oh, feel free. Feel <laughs> free. I mean, this show is all about ranting. So if you, if you feel one coming, uh, just, you know, let her rip. Since we're on the subject, though, I wonder if this is going to characterize the rest of the episode that we're doing here. But uh, as far as tangents, but... <laughs> There's a moment in that documentary that I think has haunted fans for years, and it's like we're all afraid to talk about it. But there's this moment where they kind of make fun of one of the uh, uh, designs of the Tim Burton Superman outfit, which as far as I know was not going to be his main outfit. But basically he's got the red cape and then the sort of strange-looking kind of black bodysuit with a shiny Mm -hmm. metallic uh, symbol on his chest. And this is what people seem to point, want to point to over and over and over again to say that that is what that movie would have been like. And the reason I'm, I guess I'm being kind of a pain in the neck about it right now is because I think it's only been in the last 24 hours or something like that that the uh, trailer for – the uh, I think it's called The Death of Superman Lives mm-hmm. uh, got uh, posted to YouTube. Um, just in time for Comic-Con. I mean, I'm not sure if that's necessarily the best timing in the world, but, you know, it's the hand we've been dealt. But you you see these um, – you actually see a little bit of footage of uh, Nicolas Cage wearing what looks like a fairly normal-looking, you know, sort of blue bodysuit with 
maybe an unfinished symbol or something like that on his chest. And it basically looks like a fairly typical Superman outfit from what, you know, the little glimpses of it that we see and everything. And it, and, and it just that documentary, I think, has gone on to shape conventional wisdom in ways that I just do not think are appropriate at all. So this is my way of saying I, I agree with you. Yeah, well, with with that particular project, you know, to be fair, I think it's probably for the best that it didn't get made. But on the other hand, John Schnepp, who uh, the director and producer of that documentary, uh, you know, is basically, I think, trying to show the real story behind it because, you know, we live and we've lived in this world for quite some time, but we live in a world where suddenly once something is said enough, it becomes fact. Like, I think people, and I'm not trying to insult anybody personally, but I think people actually say, oh, that would have sucked. And it's just been said so much that even people who weren't alive during the development of that and hearing about it, like in Wizard Magazine and all that, I think, uh, you know, are like, oh, yeah, that would have just been terrible. And we don't know that. You know, right. <laughs> we can't know that. We, it's just not possible. And looking at the designs that they were coming up with, while, you know, I, I don't know if it would have been a really good Superman film, it certainly would have been interesting. And the shots that we've seen of Nicolas Cage in the more traditional Superman costume, that's a nice looking Superman costume in all honesty. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I, I was like, okay, that's how you do a Tim Burton-esque Batman suit with Superman where you have kind of rubber muscles and everything. And it didn't look all that bad. So it's just, I'm really looking forward to that documentary actually coming out. Uh, I, 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 I am super looking forward to that. Well, uh, me too. And I guess, I'm jazzed about it now in a way that I just wasn't before. Now, to kind of cross-promote here, um, not that Steve Yunus gives a damn about me one way or the other, but um, John Schnepp was actually on an episode of Radio KAL Live at one point, and he was actually, at the time, I think he was trying, he was basically promoting the fact that he was going to do some sort of crowdsource financing on the... um, Yeah, it was during the Kickstarter campaign. Right. And... Based on exactly nothing except for the fact that I listened – I was only able to listen to maybe five or maybe ten minutes of that thing, and then I decided to call in because, damn it, that's how I roll. Um, what I, did, I guess what I thought was that he basically was raising money primarily for distribution, and he already had like 90 or 95 percent of his content basically figured out and ready to go. And so what he needed to do was basically get money to finish, and that's not – Apparently, I was so far off when it comes to that. What he wanted to do was he wanted to talk to um, as much of the crew as possible, not least of whom was Tim frickin' Burton. Right Mm -hmm. now, to my knowledge, Tim Burton hasn't really talked publicly a whole lot about whatever that movie was or wasn't going to be or or whatever happened. Uh, Guys, look, you got to understand, that movie apparently left such a bad taste in Tim Burton's mouth. He hasn't worked for Warner Brothers since. But now apparently he is willing to talk about it and kind of loosen up and make jokes about it and everything. And, you know, I guess I did not connect the dots that this is what John Schnepp wanted to do with his documentary. But I'm and I'm not complaining. It's just I completely did not understand what he you know, what he was trying to do. And, of course, Kevin Smith is going to be in it because he has to fucking be in everything now. But um, and well, also, to be fair, he wrote a couple drafts of the script. So, well, I know. Well, and, and I get that. But it just feels like, you know, that. He was he was part of that process when 
it had a direction. I mean, maybe it wasn't the best direction, <clears throat> but that movie had a direction. And it really didn't get derailed, at least not too badly, until Tim Burton got involved. And to me, that's the, you know, the part of the story that we don't know details about. I mean, everyone knows. I mean, I think by now we've all seen that little bit from An Evening with Kevin Smith where he has this, I think it's like a 10 or 15 minute story about how he ended up uh, uh, writing drafts of, of the Superman script that they had sitting around you know, rewrote it and everything. And, you know, we've all seen that YouTube video and that's fine, but, you know, it's, it, it just kind of feels like his participation of it for better or for worse. And I am not second guessing John Schnepp on this, especially about a, a product I haven't even seen, which is itself about a product I've haven't even seen, but, um, I'm not, I'm, I'm not bashing on the guy for that, but I, I guess it, I, I just feel like, you know, I've heard Ke uh, Kevin Smith self promote and, and all of the all of that stuff so fucking many times i've seen that that youtube video we all have and you know what we haven't heard is i don't know some random costume designer's point of view on it and it looks like we will we haven't heard tim burton's point of view on it too much and it looks like we will and it just kind of feels like do we really need kevin smith to be in this thing now other than saying oh by the way this is actually you know what ended up getting tim burton's attention there's a kevin smith script now let's talk to tim you know so, anyway. That's fair. Carrie Gamble's in it, too, which I'm pretty excited about. How did I not know this? Uh, he, he was one of the uh, art people. For, really? Uh, for the, yes. Yeah, he did some designs for it. So, he, you see, uh, about halfway through the trailer, you see him talking to a bald guy. And that's Carrie Gamble. So, that, that's another reason why I'm kind of excited about it. Yeah, I know. I am, too, now. All right, well... Tell you what, um, you know what? Maybe we should do another show about that at some point. But uh, <laughs> right now, um, there's something else we need Sorry. to talk about. Didn't mean to derail you, sir. Oh, hey, I love being derailed, but uh, you know, people's time. It, you know, I'm sure eventually they want us to just, I don't know, shut up and sing. You know, so. Uh, all right. Well, anyway, we're going to be talking about Superman Volume One, Number One Forty Nine: The Death of Superman. Writer is Jerry Siegel. Uh, penciler is Kurt Swan, inker is Fuck Defino, and uh, here's the synopsis. So, this is an imaginary tale. While serving time in prison, Lex Luthor suddenly strikes one of the guards, which lands him doing rock-breaking duty, which, as it turns out, was his intention all along. While toiling on the rocks, Luthor finds what prompted him to break rocks in the first place, namely, Element Z, a rare element with special properties. Going before the warden, Luther asks permission to have access to the prison hospital laboratory for a period of 24 hours. When asked why, Luther explains that he has found a means to cure cancer. Despite their misgivings, the warden get, uh, decides to grant this request based on uh, Luther's apparent desire to atone for all of his years of wrongdoing. And surprisingly enough, Luther succeeds and becomes a national hero for curing cancer. Wishing to help out, Superman goes out into space and collects a large amount of Element Z so that they can come up with a, a supply to eradicate cancer once and for all. With cancer having been cured, Luther is put before a parole board, and with Superman's blessings, Luther is allowed to leave prison and attempt a new start. 
Superman and Luther become unlikely friends, and Luther takes Superman to his secret Luther's lair and allows Superman to destroy it while the two reminisce on some of their old clashes. Set up as a legitimate scientist, Luther's confronted by mobsters Duke Garner and Al Mance, who threaten him to stop his good deeds or else suffer an accident, quote-unquote. When the two crooks attempt to have Luther shot, or a grenade tossed at him, Superman comes to his rescue and gives him a signal watch to summon the Man of Steel anytime there's trouble. The assassination attempts continue, though, which prompts Superman to consult Supergirl in secret and figure out a way to protect Luther from all the potential mob hits that have been put out uh, that have been put out on him. The two deduce, or rather, the two decide to build a satellite out in space for Luther to work in with a special signal system to call Superman for help. One day, the Man of Steel gets a distress uh, a call from Luther's satellite which is a giant fucking rocket shaped like Lex Luthor himself. And so Superman goes to see what the trouble's all about. He walks blindly into a trap set by uh, Luthor, who has not reformed at all, but only pretended to just long enough to trick Superman into a death trap. Luthor then bombards the Man of Steel with kryptonite rays. And as Perry White, Lois Lane, and Jimmy Olsen are forced to watch, Luthor pumps Superman with a lethal dose of kryptonite, killing him. With Superman dead, Luther gathers a gang of criminals and they celebrate his victory while mourners from all over the universe, including the Justice League of America and the Legion of Superheroes, all come to pay their final respects to the Man of Steel. Just as Luther begins planning his first series of crimes, the meeting's crashed by what at first appears to be Superman. However, it's merely Supergirl in disguise who, reve who reveals her identity to them all before taking Luther away. She brings him to the bottle, city, the bottle city of Kandor, where he's shrunk down to size and put on trial for the murder of Superman. Found guilty, Luther attempts to appeal to the people by offering a, a, a way to restore Kandor back to its original size. Refusing to make a deal with a the murderer, they instead banish Luther to the Phantom Zone for all eternity. With justice served, Supergirl and Crypto go out into the world to carry on Superman's heroic legacy. Supergirl is thankful that she can now reveal herself to the public, but she has deep remorse that her cousin had to die in order for her to do so. And there goes my phone. I'm getting a text message. So anyway, how's that for an interruption? But my girlfriend's best friend just had a baby, so that's the uh, that's what the text message was. So yay! Anyway, so. As the guest of honor, what did you think of the story, Michael? I really enjoy this story. Uh, like I said, it's probably one of my favorite imaginary stories, uh, right next to the amazing story of Superman Red and Superman Blue. I, uh, What I really like is that for a story of this time, because it takes an entire issue to tell, it's a lot denser than a lot of Silver Age stories might be. Mm -hmm. And it builds nicely. I mean, you, you really, in the in the beginning, you think Luther's up to something, but for a while there, you're kind of right there with Superman, that he's reformed, and that he just wants to do good work. And so that when it, it's revealed that that was all a, a plan on Luther's part to kill Superman, one, I, I think that's extremely involved and kind of awesome, and two, it shows the depths of Luther's hatred 
that he's willing to play the long game. You know, just just attacking Superman's not going to do it. No, I'm I'm going to make him think that he's my friend, and then I'm going to kill him. And oh, by the way, while I'm killing him, I'm going to make all of his friends watch. So I don't know how he got them up on the satellite. You know, he's Lex Luthor. I guess he just figured that out. Uh, but just just to go through all of that just to kill his enemy, I mean, it's just... It's great. And the fact that this is written by Jerry Siegel, I think just it takes it up to another notch because here's a man that got screwed over by DC to a certain extent, came back and wrote some of the best Superman stories of this era. And I just love I just love everything about it. I like the uh, I I like the beginning where he strikes the guard and, you know, that's just part of his plan and that he he's going to cure cancer. I especially love non-ironically that Lex Luthor has a hideout where he has statues of Attila the Hun, Genghis Khan, Captain Kidd, and Al Capone (laughs) that he has Superman destroy, which he does in one punch, it seems like. So, you know, that's that's another historic comic book one punch. Uh, You know, that and Batman knocking Guy Gardner out. I like all the attempts on Superman's life, I mean, on Lex Luthor's life that Superman has to foil. Uh, the funeral itself is is rather uh, rather touching too. I mean, they they take again for the time period they take a long time on this, and while I don't think that Kurt Swan excelled at Aliens, they don't look bad. So and and it's, I'm just wondering how the uh, how the uh, did they get temporary visas to come to the planet? I don't know. I don't know if the government really got involved all that much. And you have the Legion. But my favorite part of this entire story is that Luther, right there at the end, tells the people of Kandor, okay, all right, I killed Superman. Punishing me won't bring him back, so let's compromise. Let me go, and I'll build a ray, a ray that will enlarge Krypton. I mean, a Kandor, because this is what you always wanted. And apparently the judges on Kandor are hardcore uh, because not only do they like have the, the executioner right there, mm-hmm. but <laughs> just ready to, to, to meet it out. But they're like, we don't make deals with murderers. Send them to the Phantom Zone immediately. And it's just like, wow, that's awesome. So not only do you have this like excellent story, but Luther actually gets what he deserves. I mean, that's a final prison sentence. They're not he, he's not going to escape from the Phantom Zone. You know, he can't knock out a guard and, 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 and weasel his way out of this. So uh, on a really weird note, there is a, a page in, in, in the third chapter uh, where Lex is partying with his fellow criminal compatriots. And on the bottom of page four of that section, he's got kind of a squinty eye thing going where one eye is kind of wild and one eye is kind of squinty. Mm-hmm. That looks like something out of a Jack Kirby comic. Uh, I, I uh, specifically the first issue of the Hulk for some reason it looks kind of like Igor uh, from that, and I know that this came out before that, but it was just I just thought it was kind of interesting that uh, Swan put that much effort to kind of make him look crazy when he's describing how he killed Superman. <clears throat> I mean, I I really don't have too many problems with this story. Actually, I can't really think of. I can't think of one uh, that would be like, you know, as a story, this is my problem with it. I mean, it's, I, I just loved it. Uh, yeah, and that's that's pretty much where I am. I mean, there there are a couple of just sort of strange moments. I like the drive-by 
grenading and then <laughs> comparing Lex Luthor to, of all people, Adolf Eichmann. And I'm, look, I'm not saying that Adolf Eichmann was a saint. In fact, I'm saying the total opposite. The guy, I'm, I'm sure he's everything that people imagine that he was. But that's just an odd comparison to make at the moment you're sentencing somebody to basically an eternal living death. All right, that's of all things that it, that of all comparisons that uh, an alien race could make. This is the guy they chose, really. I mean, they maybe they say, were trying to say Hitler, but they just got the name wrong. It could be, or I don't know. It's just. Look, it's one of those things, there's so f- much else about this story that's just punk rock, it really doesn't make sense to focus on that one thing and say, what the fuck? But honestly, dude, what the fuck? But anyway, here's what works for me. Even if it's just for this one issue, the emotion of this story is completely real. In the context of this story, Superman dies, and his death is permanent. It's meaningful. It's a tragic loss to millions of people all across the world, all across the universe, really. There's no head of state. There's no president, no emperor, no pope, no celebrity. There's no movie star or rock star. Nobody else is going to have a death that affects this many people. I mean, this is a major tragedy. And to me, it also sells Lex Luthor as a character. He's not just a misunderstood loner with a chip on his shoulder about his own superiority. I mean, here, he's just evil. And, and I mean, let's face it, killing Superman is a pretty fucking morally barbaric thing to do. And Lex not only does it, but he finds the cruelest and most evil way to do the job. And if you ask me, that goes right to Superman's character. I mean, if Lex had built uh, like uh, another super weapon to destroy Superman, Superman would have had him back in jail by page two. All right, we all know that. Lex realizes that too, and so this is where he changes up his strategy. He exploits Superman's only true weakness, and that is his belief in the goodness of everyone. I mean, Lex is so determined to kill Superman that the motherfucker cures cancer. But it's all part of a conspiracy to take Superman out permanently. And not only that, he makes all of Superman's friends watch. I mean, people, that's some dark shit. But, I mean, like, once it's all over, Supergirl decides to pick up where Superman left off. I mean, yeah, Superman's gone, and nothing's ever going to change that. But at the same time, the never-ending battle for truth, justice, and the American way gets carried on with Supergirl, and also with the common man. I mean, Superman isn't just a cape and superpowers. Superman's about one man living up to the highest ideals, and at the same time inspiring other people to do the same thing. So, sure, Lex killed the man, but he can never defeat the dream that Superman represents. So, yeah, Superman won't be around anymore, but, dude, Genie's out of the bottle. Uh, For as horrifying as killing Superman is, at this point, it's too little too late. Does that make sense? I mean, Superman's already shown the people of the world a better way, and whether he's still alive or not, They'll eventually live up to everything that Superman idealized and represented. So, yeah, Superman's funeral is dark and it's sad and all that, but it still has this powerful uh, undercurrent of hope. And to me, that's what matters here. I mean, does that make sense? Yeah, it would definitely be that where were you when Superman died moment. You know, there would be a cultural touchstone. Uh, for the people of that of that earth, you know, and the fact that Supergirl would carry on 
I mean, I'm sure there would be people who would kind of doubt her at first, but I think a lot of people would rally behind her that she's trying to carry on her cousin's work. And, you know, you know, and, and it goes it goes galactic even because, you know, all those alien heads of state. Obviously, Superman made an impression not only on the people of Earth, but the people of the universe and of all time, because the Legion shows up to pay their respects. Yeah. And yeah, on one hand, it's kind of a checklist of all the important people in Superman's life. But on the other, that just speaks to who Superman is as a person. And, you know, the like you said, the ideals that he represents. And yeah, for a while, I, I totally see that people would kind of have that what would Superman do type of attitude. Uh, and and then try to carry on with his work, and you know there, there's always going to be a Lex Luthor, but at the same time it kind of showed that there's always going to be a Superman to stand up to that as well. Right. Well, and speaking of which, you know another angle here is uh, Superman's death, like the actual moment where he gets trapped in uh, uh, Luthor's little uh, death trap. There, I mean, guys, this is Saw. This is. This is torture porn. You know, you need to understand. I mean, this thing went on for like three pages. And in the Silver Age, it was rare for scenes to, uh, for one scene to go for three pages. But this one did. And, you know, there is a kind of twisting of the knife here. But at the same time, you know, uh, obviously Jerry Siegel felt like he needed to sell the permanence of this. You know, that it's not, we're not going to find out that. You know, this was a Superman robot, or it's a clone, or there's going to be time travel or something. No, this is the real thing. And, you know, he kind of indulges the moment to, to sell the seriousness, uh, the seriousness of it. Because here's the thing. Lex's little scam would never have worked if he hadn't pretended to change his ways. Mm -hmm. But by pretending to be a good guy, by curing cancer... By refusing any kind of reward for his work, by tricking Superman into going to bat for him uh, for the parole board, by pretending to work on a cure for heart disease and all that other bullshit, Lex is showing that he has finally understood what Superman's real weakness always was. And at least in this continuity, Lex and Superman were friends when they were kids. But Superman lost his friend and gained an enemy in the process. And it's not a stretch to think that he's he's wanted his friend back his entire life. And now it looks like it's finally happening. And I'd go so far as to say this might not have worked if anybody but Luther had tried it. But Superman's only too eager to believe that Lex has changed his ways. And that's what ultimately lulls him into a false sense of security. It's basically what gets him killed. Now, what I'm going to say next... Guys, I want you to understand I did not spring this on Michael. I told him in advance that I was going to make this point. I am not ambushing him. But all of these things are the reasons why the death of Superman works better for me as a story than, than Doomsday does. The death of Superman and Doomsday, there's a sense in which they both kind of tell variations on the same story. But to me, the death of Superman is dignified and powerful in ways that Doomsday just isn't. And look, don't get me wrong, I love Doomsday. I think it was lots of fun. But at the same time, there's really not much of a story there. Which is to say, there's really not much of a plot. Uh, Superman and Doomsday, they fight. Then they fight some more. Then they fight in the middle of a forest. Then they fight in Metropolis. 
Then they beat each other to death. And yeah, that's tragic. Don't get me wrong. It is. But it just doesn't have the same type of power to it that Lex's betrayal does. And again, this isn't me shitting all over Doomsday because I really love that story. I just think the death of Superman is better. But preferring one doesn't mean, doesn't mean hating the other. Now, like I said, I told Michael that I was going to say all that stuff up front. And so now I think he deserves a chance to respond. So what have you got? Uh you know, I almost agree with you, because I re- when you told me that, I really started thinking about the two ways Superman died. And I will most certainly say that this is a more tragic death, because he thought, Superman thought he succeeded in doing the one thing he always wanted to do with Lex, and that was reform him. That was Superman's big thing in this era is that he always, he, he thought deep down Lex was a good guy, you know, and if he could reach that, then Lex could really achieve his full potential. It's why uh, in, in 1983, I think it was, in Action 544, mm-hmm. where Superman and Lex, uh, this is right when he gets the uh, power armor uh, that George Perez designed and would eventually become a superpowers figure. Uh, a damned and, cool at, one, too. <laughs> I'm looking at it right now. Uh, there, There is a moment at the beginning of that story where Superman has basically, at that point, he's had enough of Lex's shit. And I, Lex almost recognizes that because Superman has, not only is he looks angry, he's just more violent. It's just like, he's like, okay, you know, I thought I could reform this, form this guy that ain't happening. He's just a he's just a danger, and it's almost like you're afraid Superman's going to kill him. Now, obviously, at that point, that wasn't going to happen. But here, you know, Lex uses Superman's greatest strength against him and turns it into a weakness. He kills him with kryptonite, but really, he killed him before that with the betrayal. That you know, that struck to him as a person, and I think honestly, that's one of the reasons why Lex, I mean, Superman died. Because, it, you know, yeah, he's got the kryptonite and it's killing him and he's got the fever. But he's been in this kind of situation before. But I think that added betrayal is what led him to not fight as hard as maybe he might have if this was just a normal battle between the two of them. And it really de- – and it, it, it's, it's sad because he doesn't die defending the people of Metropolis. He dies – quietly in front of his friends who are forced to watch the person they care about, especially Lois, you know, the, the woman that loves him, they're forced to sit there and watch, you know, you, you said that's torture porn. You're absolutely right. I, I mean, I, I can't even, they never talk about it cause it wasn't that era. But when you really start thinking about this story, that's, that's like the worst thing you could do, not only to Superman, but to the people that care about him. Yeah. And the, the thing is, is that what edges out Doomsday, and I like the fact that you call it Doomsday and not the death of Superman, because that storyline was called Doomsday. It was Doomsday Part 1, Doomsday Part 2. It wasn't the death of Superman Part 1. So Yeah, I know that the trade paperback has a different title, but damn it. The comics I paid money for were titled Doomsday, so that's what I go by. So, uh, so I, I, I appreciate that. But 
the only reason I will edge it out, and and we're talking like by a safety here, okay? Mm-hmm. And we're we're not talking like you know this was like a, a if it was a fight they'd stop it. To mix my sports metaphors, mm-hmm. um, death of Superman happened in the continuity, and they dealt with it. You know, it being an imaginary story does not diminish its power, but when I'm thinking of long term, in the very next issue, Superman's up and around and everything's okay. Mm-hmm. You know, it wasn't that case with Doomsday. With Doomsday, you went right into funeral for a friend where Superman was barely in the book. And he really wasn't even in the book all that much at the beginning of Reign of the Superman. So, yes, the the manner in which he dies here is a little more tragic. Uh, no less heroic, because Superman giving his life and fighting Doomsday was was pretty damn heroic. I mean, Doomsday wasn't going to stop. You know, he was, he was the unstoppable killing machine. Mm-hmm. And there was nothing anybody could do. I mean, this dude decimated the Justice League. Uh, now, to be fair, it wasn't the most powerful iteration of that team. And uh, I'm not saying I don't like those characters. I'm just saying, you know, if it was Greenland, you know, like Hal Jordan and um, Barry Allen and, you know, Wonder Woman and Batman and Martian Manhunter all going up against him at one. Though technically, I guess you could say Martian Manhunter was there, mm-hmm. uh, given what happened eventually with Bloodwind. But wow, still, yeah, that was a weird one, wasn't it? Yeah. <laughs> But uh, but still, you know, it, so it's it's not like the, he took out the A-list Justice League. But, you know, that's a that's a pretty powerful group of people. Maxim has no one to sneeze at, you know, and neither is Guy Gardner with his yellow power ring. So, you know, I, I agree with what you say. It's just in in the end, I will I will edge Doomsday and the whole death and return of Superman saga kind of edges out the story. But it has the it has the advantage of being a story that took nine months to tell. So there's that, but that's where I'm going to kind of, kind of leave it because, uh, I don't disagree with you, but I just have a kind of a different take on it. Well, yeah. And I, and one of the things that I don't want to do is make it sound like I'm diminishing doomsday because I'm not, because when you think about it, you know, what Superman had to do in that story and we, he makes the decision off panel, but there comes a point, and damned if I could tell you where it is, but there comes a point when he knows what he's up against now. You know, he knows what ultimately this is going to cost him. You know, stopping Doomsday is gonna kill him. And I, and again, there, you're hard pressed to find the issue where he he makes that realization. But I think by the by the beginning of Superman number seventy five, he now knows what he's up against. He knows what he has to do. And so there's this, there, there's got to be, you know, quite a bit of time where he knows what the end of this is going to be. And he still keeps fighting. He still keeps uh, pushing forward. And in the end, he, he doesn't die because somebody betrayed him or because, um, you know, they, they got the drop on him. You know, they had some kind of scam going, you know, a conspiracy to take him down. He dies protecting the, uh, uh, well, as much as anything, not the woman he loves alone, but her, his friends, his whole adopted city, everything. He, uh, he basically lays it all on the line and makes a very sacrificial uh, decision to take down the most unstoppable and powerful killing machine the world has ever known. And at the same time, he knows what's coming. He's also very much 
okay with it as long as he takes Doomsday with him, you know? And that's balls. I mean, I, it, it would be nice to think that any of us would, would be capable of making that same exact choice to protect other people if it, if it you know, push ever came to shove. But let's be realistic here, you know? And so, you know, if you guys take nothing – and, Michael, you, you're included in this. If you guys take nothing else away from this, I mean, I really don't want you to think I'm looking down my nose at Doomsday. No, it's just to me there's a um, – there's a, I don't know, a bigness to this story that – um, the doomsday as a story, what there is of a story, it just doesn't really have. And, you know, so, you know, it, the comparisons are inevitable because they're, they're so similar to one another, but it almost feels like in some ways they're sort of misapplied. But it just kind of feels like, you know, if you're ever going to talk about doomsday, you kind of have to talk about the death of Superman. And if you're going to talk about the death of Superman, doomsday's got to come up at some point or another, you know? And... <laughs> I don't know why, but these stories that really don't have anything in common are constantly compared to one another. And so this is just me riding along with that. Now, one of the th one of the kind of trends in fandom that I don't know if you've noticed a whole lot of, but something that I've seen is you hear this, um, this, this new term kind of get kicked around from time to time. My continuity. Now, mm -hmm. once in a while... Fandom will come up with a uh, a new term, a reboot, right? I remember when that became. I, I remember first hearing that like sometime back in uh, the mid '90s, like the early to mid '90s. Um, and I'm not saying it didn't pre-exist then. I'm just saying that's you know it was around the end of the '80s. I started buying comics, and then the early '90s when I was a hardcore collector. So that's what I'm talking about. That was the first time I ever heard somebody use the word reboot. In, uh, with respect to continuity. But these days, what you hear now is uh, it, there's another new one, at least to me, that's popped up in the last maybe six or seven, eight years. It's my continuity. And basically, this is this story is one of the ones that seems to get included on a lot of my continuity lists where people haven't read everything. And even if you have, I mean, even if you've read everything that uh, all, uh, you know, everything uh, from the... Um, the Silver Age, odds are you're not going to retain it. But even if you do, do you really want to remember some of that stuff? I, look, a lot of it's awesome, but some of it is just a little bit weird. There are, you know, for every death of Superman, there are like five, well, how am I going to, what, what shenanigans am I going to use to trick Lois into thinking that I'm not Superman this month? Right. Uh, and, and, and I say that as somebody that went through the first volume of the Superman showcase where it, 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 it literally was like every fourth story was like, oh, this is great. And then you're like, oh, OK, he's hanging out with the military. That's interesting. OK, I'll, I'll I'll sit through this. And, oh, he he, he has to use his X-ray vision to do. Uh, OK, OK. Oh, 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 wait, 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 wait. Fortress of Solitude. OK, we're back on track here. So. Right. And again, you're going to get that with having three stories per issue 10 times a year. So that's 30 just in Superman. I'm not talking about Action Comics or World's Finest or any of the other or Superboy, you know? Right. That, that's just that's just 30 Superman stories right then and there. You're going to have your filler stories for lack of a better term. Right. Right. Well, and you know the thing is you know, this one. Uh, this is one of those stories that that you, you 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 tend to find a lot of people say, "Well, in my continuity, 
this is the end of Superman's story. Like the Silver Age Superman, this is where his story ends. And what I, you know, I guess what I would say to that is, I don't know as I'd go so far as to say that I'm one of those people. Like if the Silver Age Superman must have some type of ending, this one is good. And it's a it's a hell of a dignified send off. It's a it's a great way for the character to go. I just don't know if I'm if I would go so far as to say this is how I would like to see the character check out. But I will say this: this story is a hell of a lot more respectful of the Silver Age. And I and I realize this is sort of at the dawn of the Silver Age, so maybe it, 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 that's a weird compliment to pay it. But at the same time, this this. It just feels like this story is reverential and respectful in ways that whatever happened to the Man of Tomorrow just isn't. No, I'll agree with that. And, you know, it is it is interesting. You know, I, I don't I don't look down on anybody that has the whole my continuity thing. I think it's an interesting facet of fandom that, you know, when, when you when you embrace something like Star Wars or Star Trek or Superman or Batman or spider-man or anything like that what you basically get into is what touched your sweet spot in the first place you know i i uh, scott gardner and i were talking about this the other day that you know comic book fans are like junkies you know we're constantly chasing our first high we're constantly chasing that that feeling we got when we first got into comics and i think the whole my continuity thing kind of spins out of that where you know, you have loved this thing so much that you are able to put like an like a capper on it at this particular moment in the character's history. Like at that point, it just ended and nothing else happened after that. And I don't know if that's some kind of psychological defense mechanism, <laughs> like they don't want to deal with anything or it's just an acceptance that things changed. I don't like what happened. So this is where I'm going to choose to close things out. So I don't necessarily see it as a bad thing, but it is kind of a weird phenomenon. You're absolutely right about that. I, I, I don't know if maybe it's because we're more vocal because we have the ability to be more vocal. I mean, it's not like five guys sitting around a comic shop talking. You know, now, you know, you know it's, it's on a much grander s- stage uh, with comic book fandom nowadays and has been, you know, pretty much, you know, they basically, in, the internet took you know, fanzines and appas and just kind of exploded it so that anybody with a connection, it's not just a couple people getting together and mailing each other stuff and then mailing, you know, compiling all those articles and then sending it out. You know, this is people like having a message. I was recently told by the way, that saying the word message boards dates me. Uh, I, I, I I guess, I don't know. Well, what Maybe should people, you call them then? Uh, well, apparently no one goes to message boards anymore. It's all Twitter and Reddit and Facebook and all that. So I jeez. <laughs> oh, wow. I, I just don't like the fact that what was the predominant way of comic book fans expressing themselves, you know, when I first started getting online is now considered outdated at past phase. So. Uh, well, no, I don't like that either. In fact, that actually kind of sort of bothers me, but... <laughs> You know, but I guess as far as the my continuity thing goes, and again, uh, Michael, if you want, I'll edit this out later, okay? Because uh, this I did not tell you about in advance, and okay. uh, and again, I don't want you to feel like you're being baited here. But um, you know, I look at some of the things that uh, happened after uh, Reign of the Superman, 
where I would say that maybe for like the year or two years or something like that, three years, there came a point, and damned if I could say quite when, but the, you know, there was a point right after Reign of the Superman where I truly believe Mike Carlin and the creative teams, they really were filing, uh, firing on all cylinders. And I don't mean like it just sort of petered out. I mean, it just came to a crashing fucking halt. Maybe it was zero hour. Maybe that's what did it. I don't know. But it, it, I want to say that like basically after they finished up the Dead Again storyline and after they finished up the Death of Clark Kent storyline, both of which I think are actually quite good, that iteration of Superman, it's like it just progressively – he lost his way more and more and more – to the point where I started looking back at, um, let me think, it was Superman number 77, I think, where basically the cover is Superman flying off to his reward, and then issue ends with basically Superman escorting Jonathan Kent into the afterlife. They're basically checking out together. And I thought, you know what? Maybe that is where the story actually ended, because I look at some of the things that went on later, and I couldn't help but think, you know what, maybe it's better that Superman checked out here, he died, he had this epic funeral, and people missed him, And but, you know, families, or, I don't know, basically people managed to reach out to each other, and, um, you know, uh, hope was rekindled, friendships were, you know, remade, and bridges were rebuilt, and, you know, he ultimately did his job. Maybe even in ways he never anticipated, because I got to tell you, that is a lot more interesting to me than some of the stuff that's going on right now with, shall we say, other things. So anyway, like I say, I didn't tell you about that part in advance because it only it obvious it only really just occurred to me. But it, since we were talking about the my continuity thing, it kind of made me think. You know, there was a point when I got to tell you, I was kind of starting to think the Burn Age Superman really did just end. With Superman number seventy-seven, so whatever, it, uh, whatever you want to say to that. You know, it's it's interesting because I remember after Reign of the Superman and Superman's Back, and especially after Zero Hour, that was when I was kind of in full flower as like an out, like a like an all-out comic book fan. Mm-hmm. It wasn't just me just collecting the Superman books and kind of you know, stipping my t- dipping my t- sticking my toe, dipping my toe you know, into the larger comic book world every once in a while. Now, after Zero Hour, I kind of jumped in feet first to the deep end of the DC universe. Mm-hmm. It was a good time and, to do it. And, well, it was, it was kind of designed to. I mean, I, I, I fell prey to merchandising, and I have no... Just as when I was a kid and I watched Transformers and wanted Transformers toys, I hold no ill will towards those people uh, because it was an awesome way to spend my childhood. But... You know, after Dead Again, and and, and you kind of hit the nail on the head, after Death of Clark Kent, uh, that was when Carlin wasn't editing anymore. And Casey Carlson, I believe it was Casey Carlson, edited for a little while, and then Joey Cavalieri came on. And it was really during that era that I started... It's not like I hated it, but it was just like... It would get, it would be there would like be peaks and valleys. I'd like really like it, or I'd be like, man, I'm just I'm just not feeling this, you know. It's just that's just that's kind of weird when you really think about it. And I feel bad for for John Bogdanov because you know he comes on to draw Superman, he gets to draw him for a year and a half, and then he's killed, 
And so the classic version of what, you know, what he thinks of as the classic version of Superman, uh, a year and a half into his tenure, he can't draw him anymore. And then when he comes back, he has to draw him with long hair. And then just as when he loses the long hair, he has to start drawing an electric blue. <laughs> so, so Jeez. I kind of, I kind of feel bad about that, but especially towards, and this is nothing against Dan Jurgens or, or Louise Simonson or John Bogdanov or Carl Kessel or anybody else that was working on Superman in the late nineties. But after a while, things lose steam. You can't keep, you know, awesome up forever. It's just it, entropy will eventually start eating away at that. And definitely by the end of the nineties, I will agree that, things weren't firing on all cylinders and they were really focusing more on the secondary characters over Superman. And, you know, whereas I loved people like gangbuster and I liked Keith, uh, you know, who eventually gets adopted by Perry and, and Alice. And I like those characters. I mean, eventually it became more about scorn than about Superman almost in some cases. And, and, and the Rush Limbaugh guy, that Dirk Armstrong, that was right. That's, that's what everybody says. He's the Rush Limbaugh guy. That's great. <laughs> he is. He was totally the Rush Limbaugh guy. Come he on. was. He was. That's true. <laughs> I mean, almost physically. He had a little bit more hair and he was a little skinnier, but, you know, he was, he was the Well, people political... tend to forget the way that he looks now. He did not look like that back in the 90s. Right? No, he didn't. I was, I was reminded of that recently when I was watching something. I forget what I was watching, but they were kind of going like looking at like the early no it was a it was a special on the national geographic channel about the 90s and they were showing like the rise of rush limbaugh in the 90s and i totally forgot that he used to look like that right yeah, <laughs> yeah age caught up with him i guess but my, my yeah. mom was a big fan of him by the way so uh, who <laughs> my mom was a big fan of him oh, oh <laughs> that i did not know well um my 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 little conspiracy theory here is, is this, and I don't mean this from the. And now I'm blanking on the, on the that hipster fuckstain's uh, name, but I don't mean it in the same way that he was talking about. But I kind of feel like there is a sense in which Doomsday as a storyline sort of ruined the Burn Age Superman, or at least ruined the the creative teams, because I feel like there was a a really high degree of cons uh, of consistency. If you could, if you start from Man of Steel number one, going right on through to Adventures of Superman, I think number four ninety six around there, there's a very high degree of consistency. I mean, yeah, you get like these really weird shit once in a while, like that whole cave babe thing, and then there was the Red Glass trilogy. You get weird stuff once in a while, but basically, I would say that on a scale of ten. From 1986 to about that period of 1992, the Superman books, on a scale of 1 to 10, maybe they were a 6 or a 7 or something like that. And then here comes Doomsday. That's an 8. Funeral for a Friend is a, is a 9. And then here comes Reign of, Super, Reign of the Superman. That's a 10. And it's kind of hard to feel like, okay, now we get to go back to a 6. And it's hard to do that. And on top of all of that, I mean, how much... Uh, how much pressure must the uh, creative teams have been under and how much um, how much of their personal creativity, everything that they have to say about Superman, how much of that got poured into uh, into uh, those storylines, right? I mean, one of the things that I will really never forgive Reign of the Superman for doing is taking Tom Grummet 
and Doug Hazelwood off of Adventures of Superman because I truly believe had it not been for that Superboy comic book that 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 came along they would have stuck around and it worked great that they were the art team for Superboy for so long but I really felt like Tom Grummet got Superman like the uh, there's a, a a sort of cartooniness I mean he's I don't want to go so far as to say he's Superman's Mark Bagley because I don't really think that's true, but he and Mark Bagley have a very similar type of style, and I think it's something that works very well for Superman, this sort of kind of cartoony, uh, just high-adventure superhero type of style, and just overall, it's one of those things that, obviously, look, I can't complain about the way that things played out, but at the same time, I really do wish that Grummet and Hazelwood could have stuck around a little bit longer on Adventures of Superman, so. Yeah, and that's fair. I mean... What I what I will say is is that while the consistency of storytelling did, you know, kind of peter out after Reign of the Superman, like there were good points and there were bad points, but those started there started to become more of a disparity between the two. Mm-hmm. Uh, at least the backstory remained the same. I mean, they really didn't do a whole lot to disprove or or try to to retcon the um you know what what burn established on krypton Mm. until i would say they they tried to start doing that when jeff Loeb was writing yeah it's like 2001 uh, wasn't it or 2002 so it's kind of amazing to think that for that long a period of time the the powers that be at dc were like no superman's backstory is this and we're really going to keep it like this you know, so I, uh, I, I guess that's why for me, I, I'll, I'll be a little more charitable. I mean, when Jeffrey and I get to that stuff, I, I can't say that I'm going to love every bit of it, um, because there are definitely going to be some stories. There's a Brainiac story in 1996 that was written by I think Mark Wade and Tom Pyre came on to the titles for like a little bit. Uh, it was this weird like. It was a weird story. It had some great covers, but uh, but it was this like kind of strange Brainiac story. I remember reading at the time, going, "What is what is this?" And and, and you know, for all of what people make fun of it, I, I I actually thought the whole Electric Blue era was handled fairly well. So, but for that, for every bit of that, you had like we said the the adventures of Scorn and Ashbury. Uh, and, and all that, which really did it excite me as much as I think they really wanted it to. So, well, and I think you know you can do stories like that about um, you know, secondary characters, as long as the characters themselves are interesting. I mean, I never really minded taking trips to a Cadmus, as long as this didn't become the Cadmus Project book. As I didn't really mind that, but I never, ever liked uh you know keith and myra and the orphanage and that stuff i just felt like why why am i reading this i mean honestly i liked john bogdanov on and uh as an artist and everything i mean i really enjoyed that but it just kind of felt like i never really got louise simonson as a writer and i think that's most of the reason why superman the man of steel as a as a comic this was the book that I would just kind of grit my teeth and just sort of force myself through and try to enjoy the art as much as I could because 
I just did not really connect to a lot of what she was trying to I honestly I really don't know what the hell she was trying to do for my you know every now and then you know a comic book writer will come on to a uh, come on to a title it's like they don't know what the fuck their job is which is to write superhero stories it's like they're determined to do everything but and it just kind of feels like there were occasions where I think Louise Simonson could credibly be accused of wanting to do anything except you know show Superman punch a robot or something like that. No? Does that make sense? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it, the Man of Steel was always the more... Uh, I don't I don't say this as an insult. It was always the softer title. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like, you know, Superman, especially when Jurgens was handling it, was kind of, you know, straight-ahead action. Uh, and, and when Stern was dealing with action, that was a very action-oriented book. And adventures always seemed to be focusing more on the other cast, you know, bits of Superman's cast when Jerry Ordway was writing it. And I think Carl Kessel kind of kept that up a little bit. And then, you know, with Louise Simonson, it was, you know, the more human side of Superman, I I guess is a better way to say it, because it was Keith and it was Myra. And uh, I think they did the better issues when Perry White was going through his cancer. Uh, you know, the, they seem to kind of take the bulk of that. It was really interesting when, when you when you read it in, in with the benefit of hindsight, you really kind of see what people were responsible for what characters. Because mm-hmm. I, I, I am a, I am totally convinced that while other people wrote the character, Roger Stern had some kind of dibs on Lex Luthor. Yeah, that's uh, undeniable through the, really... through the tenure of his storyline, because all of the big Lex Luthor stories happened when Roger Stern was writing it. You know, those were his issues. And, you know, definitely Bibbo, and even to a certain extent, Jimmy was kind of Jerry Ordway's characters. You know, like the the, the big things that happened with them always happened in an Ordway story. So, and I kind of like that, because it, it, it's like people playing to their strengths. Uh, but, uh you know, I I can't sit here and say that Louise Simonson was my favorite Superman writer, uh, but I think I liked her a little bit more than you did. So, right. Well, uh, she's there are very few writers of Superman that I just really cannot abide, and she's not one of them. But at the same time, it's just, you know, John Bogdano's art style. It took some getting used to. It was sort of like this Joe Schuster, John Sakella thing with more lines and hatching and stuff. So. I eventually kind of developed a taste for that, and especially anytime it was a very heavy type of sci-fi story or it had Superman, I hate to say it, battling robots, or if there's a lot of shit blowing up, or Lobo comes comes to Metropolis and he's looking for trouble, you know, or something like that, that stuff I can get behind, you know, but it just, it kind of felt like the minute you you try to make John Bogdano draw these sort of human interest type of stories about this confused lonely kid at an orphanage and this whole time i'm sitting there thinking i don't give a flying shit can we just show superman fly around or something you know i look whatever i mean i'm sure there's somebody out there right now that you know is that completely in love with louise simonson's work on superman and thinks i'm just the biggest meanie head in the entire world but sorry dude i don't think hippies should be writing superman so there you go um and that's kind of what it felt like. It felt like, you know, this is like the hippie Superman book sometimes. But um, anyway, so. Wow. So we've talked about quite a bit of 
Superman stuff here that is not completely related to the death of Superman, and yet it is, sort of, so. All right, well, um, so do you have anything else that you want to uh, contribute here, anything that you want to throw in? No, just if you've never read this story, really give it a shot. I mean, it's it's it was reprinted in the greatest Superman stories ever told, uh, which is fairly easy to pick up on eBay uh, for less than 20 bucks. And, uh, you know, don't... Try not to, I know this is going to sound insulting, try not to read it with too much modern sensibilities, because if you try to apply modern storytelling techniques to this, it's, you know, it's, 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 it's not a fair comparison to make. I mean, to me, I think it's just one of the best written Superman stories of this era, and it, it, it does hold up well. I mean, it holds up extremely well. I agree. I agree. And, um... You know the thing is that yeah, you can get it in uh, in color anyway in the greatest Superman uh, stories ever told, but it's also in uh, Showcase Presents Superman Volume One or Two. I think Volume Two might be a little cheaper there too because those are uh, those usually go for a pretty uh, pretty decent price online as well. Right. Well, all the same though, this is definitely a story that's worth checking out, and honestly, this is in. Um, as far as just emotion, uh, art, solid writing, everything, this is one of my top ten Superman stories ever. The Death of Superman from Superman Volume 1, number 149. So um, check it out. I think it's great. So uh, now, Michael, uh, where is it that uh, people can find you? Because obviously they should be listening to your shows, and if they're not, I should give them a kick in the balls <laughs> or, or ovaries if that's what they got. You can find me at, uh, you mentioned at the top, Views from Longbox at viewsfromlongbox.com. There I talk about just about all kinds of comic book stuff, uh, mainly um, thing, mainly DC recently. It's it's been that kind of it's been that kind of party. Uh, I have a couple semi regular co hosts over there. My permanent semi regular co host, which sounds like it complicated, but it really isn't, is Andy Leyland. But I also have the irredeemable Shag. Thomas DJ comes on, and just you know, I occasionally just have just about you know anybody that I'm friends with comic book wise on the show. Uh, there is also from Crisis to Crisis a Superman podcast, uh, which is presented by the Superman homepage, which you can find at the Superman homepage. Or you can find it at FortressOfBailey2.com, which is my Superman blog, which I haven't updated in months. Uh, but that is where Jeffrey Taylor and I are going through the post-crisis adventures of Superman, uh, at this point, one half month at a time. Uh, 1994 is, I think, a, uh, a harbinger of things to come, because uh, that's where we are right now, where we're having to take little side trips into Elseworlds and... Uh, we've got Worlds Collide coming up. We had uh, the uh, Superman Doomsday Hunter Prey. Uh, so it's, I, I think as as more Superman titles pop up in the '90s, it's gonna be it's gonna be harder trying to keep on an even path <laughs> that we were doing in the beginning. Uh, there's also I'm also on Two True Freak shows as well. There's Comics Monthly Monday with Scott and Chris, and Tales of the JSA with Scott, and I'm also one of the panelists on the Spider-Man Crawl Space podcast over at spidermancrawlspace.com. And every Monday night at 10.30 Eastern Standard Time, you can head on over to the Superman homepage and listen to Steve Eunice and I do Radio KAL Live, which is actually an a honest-to-goodness call-in show uh, that uh, we do about an hour, for an hour every Monday. Excuse me, but holy shit, man! 
wow, that is a lot of stuff. And somehow you have a job too. I I don't. Well, that's that's cool. Um, you know what? I'm glad that you have the ability to do so much. So that's uh, that's great. But again, uh, Michael, thank you very much uh, for joining me because I know, I believe me, I know what this show would have been without you, and it would have been just lesser. It wouldn't have been as interesting. It would have been less insightful. And as always, you brought uh, just an, an amazingly different. And I think always welcome uh, perspective. So thank you very much again for uh, for uh, joining in with me. So um, so I think that's pretty much it. That's the end of my Superman mega series. So I'd like to thank all of you guys for listening to it. So come back next week because I'm going to be talking about uh, more big book report stuff with uh, Chris Honeywell, and I think that should be pretty much that. So bye everybody. I will see you next week. We are out. How many more of those big books do you have to go through, Chris? Michael Bailey. And I am Jeffrey Taylor. And we host a podcast called From Crisis to Crisis, a Superman podcast. Presented by the Superman homepage. On the show... Wait, wait, wait. What? This just isn't working out for me. It's not bombastic enough. We need something epic. Like what? Welcome to From Crisis to Crisis, a Superman podcast, presented by the Superman homepage. I am Jeffrey Taylor. And I am Michael Bailey. From Crisis to Crisis chronicles the adventures of Superman wait, wait, from... Wait, 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 wait. I'm just not feeling this. I'm just wondering how there's a needle-scratching sound when all of this is clearly digital. Look, all we need to say is that this is the, a trailer for a show called From Crisis to Crisis, a Superman podcast presented by the home, Superman homepage. My name is Michael Bailey. I am Jeffrey Taylor. And every week we give in-depth synopsis and reviews for just about every Superman book published between Man of Steel number one in 1986 and Adventures of Superman number 649 in 2006. We also talk about the related Superman media, what was happening in the rest of the world when these comics were published and what else was going on in the DC Universe. The show drops every Thursday-ish at the Superman homepage, which is located at www.supermanhomepage.com. From Crisis to Crisis is also a proud member of the Superman Podcast Network, located at www.supermanpodcastnetwork.com. So join Jeffrey and I each week as we explore Superman during the post-crisis era, which includes Exile, Panic in the Sky, Doomsday, The Marriage, and Beyond. And write into the show at FromCrisisToCrisis at gmail.com and hear it read on the air. Eventually, because we get behind on that sort of thing. 
Superman created by Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster. Side effects from, from Crisis to Crisis include loss of money from buying back issues, a desire to read 20-year-old comic books, nausea, drowsiness, pizza, blurred vision, upset stomach, a desire to kick puppies and kittens, and backache from lifting boxes of Superman comics. If the excitement of From Crisis to Crisis lasts more than four hours, seek immediate medical attention. My name is Michael Bailey, and I am a terrible geek. I don't watch Doctor Who, I don't care for anime, I've never seen any of the Harry Potter films, much less read the books. I like Star Wars and Star Trek okay, but I've never really ventured far into the extended universes of either property. Hell, I have never even watched a single episode of The Walking Dead. So what do I like? Comic books. I have been reading and collecting comic books since 1987, and I have been a fan of superheroes for as long as I can remember. Some would consider this a hobby, but I prefer to look at it as what it truly is, a crippling addiction that I may never recover from. To deal with this borderline personality disorder, I started a podcast in 2007 called Views from the Long Lost. Every two weeks, or so, depending on real life, I pick a particular series, or issue, or character, or whatever to talk about, and then I... Well, well I talk about them, because that's kind of the point of a podcast. Sometimes I'm alone. Sometimes I have a guest, like my semi-regular co-host, The Irredeemable Shag, or my other semi-regular co-host, Thomas DJ, or with another friend from the podcasting world. The show is located at www.viewsfromthelongbox.com. And from there, you can find the iTunes link, the email address, as well as the backlog of episodes. Views from the Long Box. A podcast about comics, or a desperate cry for help? You decide. Every other Tuesday, or so, depending on real life, at www.viewsfromthelongbox.com. It started in November 2010, when one guy decided it was time to show the denizens of the internet that there was more to Superman's adventures from the 70s and early 80s than Alan Moore and Kryptonite Nevermore. Now, three and a half years later, that mission continues. This is Superman in the Bronze Age. My name is Charlie Niemeyer, and every week I shine the spotlight on this long-overlooked era on Superman in the Bronze Age. 
Join in the fun at www.supermaninthebronzeage.com and www.supermanpodcastnetwork.com. Okay, so I think that's just about the end of that. Trentus Magnus Punches Reality is a proud member of the Two True Freaks Podcast Network. You can find the home for Trentus Magnus Punches Reality at twotruefreaks.com, which is spelled T-W-O-T-R-U-E-F-R-E-A-K-S. You can also find it on Facebook just by searching for Trentus Magnus Punches Reality. There you can interact with your fellow listeners and also see notifications of new episodes when I've put them up. You can friend me on Facebook by searching for Trentus Magnus, which is spelled T-R-E-N-T-U-S-S-M-A-G-N-U-S-S. You can email me and my parole officer at TrentusMagnus at gmail.com, which is spelled T-R-E-N-T-U-S M-A-G-N-U-S Do you have a suggestion for a topic? Feel free to email me and I might consider thinking about the possibility of potentially discussing whatever you have in mind someday and that's a promise Did you know? You can sponsor any episode of this or any other of your favorite Two True Freaks affiliated shows That's right Simply click the PayPal link donate any amount at all, tell us which show you're choosing, and what message, if any, you'd like us to read on your behalf, and you will be an official sponsor of that show's very next episode. With your message read in the show's opener, it's that easy, and there's no minimum donation. Be a show sponsor today. If you shop at Amazon.com, please consider using the link at 2TrueFreaks.com to shop there. If you use this link to go to Amazon and then you shop, Two True Freaks gets a cut of what you buy. It doesn't cost you anything extra, and it really helps the freaks out. You get to shop as usual and help out the Two True Freaks at the same time. Do you have a podcast of your own? If so, why not record a promo for me to play on my show? It's quick, easy, and can help you spread the word about your show. I'm always looking for more promos to play, Keep it fairly short, and yours could be next. My promos can be found at this show's homepage for those interested. Just look for the promos section. The contents of this podcast are fictitious, hypothetical, and probably completely unnecessary. Any similarity to living persons or real-life events is purely coincidental and void where prohibited by law, some assembly required, batteries not included. Trentus Magnus punches reality is a Magnus Media Enterprises Limited production in association with Demonsacor of Milan, Italy.